University of Chicago and the Oriental Institute. I have been waiting and am so excited to finally arrive at this week and introduce to you this clay prism. I know it's not very impressive, it's so small compared to the big artifacts that we've been looking at, but quite possibly this is the most valuable artifact in this museum. And arguably, this is the most valuable artifact in the world as it relates to our Christian faith. And the reason for that is that it, above all other physical things, gives us confidence in the reliability of our Bible. Let me tell you about it. Sennacherib ordered this prism to be made. That means that it was made in his day. It is 2,700 years old. Sennacherib was arrogant and desired there to be a record of all of his accomplishments. So he had someone make this six-sided clay prism and then had scribes take these delicate little tools and press them into the soft clay to create lines and lines of text in the lettering of cuneiform. And in doing so, he recorded all of his great military accomplishments, including detailed accounts of his battles with the cities of Judah, God's people, specifically his battle with the city of Jerusalem and the king named Hezekiah. We need to spend some time comparing this ancient artifact and the information it contains with our Bible, because I believe that at a level beyond anything you've felt before, you're about to become confident in the reliability of the Bible. Well, welcome back to the Compass Church, everybody, and welcome back to our series called Artifact. If you weren't here last week, let me just tell you that this entire series is based on these artifacts found at the University of Chicago in their museum called the Oriental Institute. And uh, I have a special guest with us, Dr. Gregory Osgood from the University of Chicago. Can we welcome him here? Uh, the University of Chicago has been so generous to our church, allowing me to film there, which was, first of all, a real treat. And then when they heard that we were going to be studying Sennacherib's prism, they actually invite, They said, would you like us to bring it to your church to show you, which is an unbelievable treat. And we are so, so grateful. I want to remind everybody again, this was discovered in the sands of Iran, Iraq, excuse me, Iraq, dating back to the Assyrian Empire, dating to uh, 2,700 years ago to the biblical time. It was created at the command of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, to boast about his military accomplishments. And what's amazing about it is that on this prism is uh, the, the record of a biblical event. And uh, as you can see, the six sides of them are just loaded with, with lots of text describing many of the military uh, accomplishments of Sennacherib, 
But the one that we're, can I show them, that we're particularly interested in is on what they call column three. Uh, column three, oh, here it is, is right here. This column, and about halfway down, is where the biblical story is written, right about here. got you, didn't we? Your heart is beating, you're freaking out. Uh, um, just wanted to make sure you're awake this morning. And so. That was a replica. That was not the real one, all right? Uh, I, I have a friend who is a professional sculptor, and I asked him if he could make some replicas of Sennacherib, actually three, so I can smash three of them in each of the services. This guy's a fake too, I should tell you. Uh, Greg, Greg is my brother-in-law. And I don't think you've ever been to the museum, have you? I have not. No? <laughs> so, you should check it out sometime. Well done, Greg. You have it Anybody spill their coffee in their lap, huh? <laughs> Pastor's going to jail. This is not good. Well, I'd like to talk to you about being gullible. Can we talk about that just for a moment? <laughs> because I have found there are different personality types, some who are a little bit quicker to believe and others who are a little more skeptical. And even as I looked across uh, the group today with this. I, some of you are like, I don't buy this. There's no way they let them bring it to church. They're definitely not letting him hold it. You know, there's this, no way. And others of you, we had you hook, line, and sinker, and you know, you're still freaking out. Well, this question of being a skeptic is very, very significant as it applies to one's response to the Bible. Those that have a more skeptical bent really struggle at times, and I, I will put myself in that category. We really struggle with believing this book. You know, you read about, you know, skeptics would say, Adam and Eve, really? You believe that two people, only two people were made, and they walked around with fig leaves, and you really think they were the only ones on planet Earth? Noah? I got to believe that if I believe this book. Noah built a big boat and the animals came two by two and the whole earth was flooded. I'm sorry, I can't buy that. And others look at Moses, you know, parted the Red Sea and the people walked on dry ground. Really? Jesus walked on the water. And for those with a skeptical bent, belief in the reliability and the accuracy of this book is really difficult. And there is widespread belief in our world that the Bible is fairy tale, that it's the creation of fertile imagination, especially when you come to a passage like the one we're studying today. You know, I, I left us kind of hanging last week. Remember, Sennacherib had come down and put a siege around Jerusalem. They're, they encamped around the walled city, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, and his people were, were trapped inside. And I didn't tell you how it ended. Let me read to you how it ends. And Again, if you're a skeptic, you have a hard time believing this. 
2 Kings 19, 35, and 36. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp, and he returned to his own land. He went home to his capital in Nineveh. And and again, a skeptic says, really? That's how the story ended. An angel of the Lord in the middle of the night killed 185,000 people, and there are corpses everywhere. Really? And it's tough to believe. And that's where the Sennacherib's prism becomes so tremendously helpful. Again, this dates, the creation of this document, if you want to call it that, dates to the time of the event. Sennacherib said, make me a prism. Record what I've done. And let's just, for grins, compare the record pulled out of the sand of Iraq to the biblical accounts. Let's go to the first slide. Again, this is the prism in column three telling us what happened. Here's the Bible, 2 Kings 18, the first verse is verse 7. The prism says this, as for Hezekiah, king of Judah. Can I just stop right there? And you say, why is that so significant? The prism just told us some things. There really was a man named Hezekiah. He was real. He wasn't fairy tale. And he really was the king. That was his office. And he was king over a very real country called Judah. And you say, Jeff, why is that so significant? Folks, do you know that the Book of Mormon, like our Bible, is filled with narrative? Narrative is stories, stories of of countries and kings and mountains and rivers and places And yet in the Book of Mormon, which supposedly took place in Central America, South America, there is absolutely no evidence that any of these places, people, mountains, rivers ever existed. Archaeologists have gone and none of it has been scientifically verified. Contrast that to our Bible. The Bible is filled with descriptions of countries and kings and people and places and mountains. They are real, as evidenced. Hezekiah, real king, king of Judah. One of the great benefits of going to Israel that I have enjoyed is standing in these places and seeing these mountains and these rivers and these cities that all the biblical events take place. Just demonstrating that our Bible is not fairy tale. It is historical. It is real. What does it say about Hezekiah? It says that though Sennacherib was the most mighty emperor in the world, Hezekiah refused to submit to his yoke. What does the Bible record? Hezekiah revolted against the king of Assyria and refused to submit to him. The Bible's telling what really happened. Next slide. Uh, Here, again, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, said, I besieged, talking about a particular type of warfare, siege warfare against when he camp around. I besieged and conquered 46 fortified cities of Judah. All right? Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, but not the only fortified cities. There were many of them. And according to Sennacherib, he besieged and conquered all of them, minus Jerusalem. What does the Bible say in verse 13? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked 
all the fortified cities of Judah. And the Bible admits he conquered them. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it shares unimpressive uh, or things that don't look good upon the people of God. It shares the dirty laundry and says, yeah, we got whooped by this guy every place except Jerusalem. Next slide. The prism goes on to say that Hezekiah paid me tribute. One of the ancient practices is that in order to appease a more powerful foe, you'd say, okay, I'll pay you money if you'll leave me alone. And Hezekiah, according to Sennacherib, paid tribute in the amount of 800 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. The Bible records the same thing. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Some of you are like, wait a minute, I think I saw a discrepancy. According to Sennacherib, it was 800 talents of silver. The Bible says 300. They agree on the gold. They don't agree on the amount of silver. And that brings up a point I'd like to make. Some people search for Bible discrepancies or various tensions that exist, and they say, oh yeah, tell me how to resolve that biblical tension. Sometimes we can. Sometimes we can't. And I just want to confess to you, and maybe you were hoping for a pastor who knew it all. You didn't get one. Uh, Sometimes I have to say, I don't know. I know that the Lord will resolve that biblical tension someday. He'll explain how that makes sense. But in that particular case, I don't know. Now, what's interesting is that we do know how to resolve this biblical tension. Uh, As uh, scientists, historians have researched the Assyrian culture, they discovered that they had two different talents, one for measuring precious metals, one for semi-precious metals, and they differed. They even found the conversion ratio, and when you make the conversion ratio, 800 talents of silver equals 300 talents of silver, problem solved. But we have to recognize that sometimes it's okay to say, I believe the Bible is true, even though I don't have an answer for every difficulty that someone may bring up. The preponderance of the evidence, as I study it and pray about it, have convinced me that the book is accurate and reliable, and I believe it. All right, let's go to the next slide. This is, you see the boasting of King Sennacherib here. He said, I locked up Hezekiah in his capital city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. Don't you see the flaunting of his dominance here? He's saying that king was squawking like a little bird who couldn't get out of his city. And the Bible admits as much. The king of Assyria sent a large army to confront King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and it goes on to detail this siege, which was essentially like a bird in a cage. But then we discover from the Bible how the story ends. The angel of the Lord slaughters 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, sending Sennacherib scampering back to Nineveh like a defeated foe. Does Sennacherib say that on his prison? And then the angel of the Lord came and wiped out 100? No, it does not. But here's what you need to know. Sennacherib didn't admit anything on his prism that was negative or unfavorable to his reputation. He carefully edited all events and only portrayed that which described him as victorious or dominant. Having said that, 
The thing I love most about the prism is what it doesn't say. And you say, Jeff, that's weird. Folks, the silence is deafening on Sennacherib's prism. And here's what I mean. Sennacherib, as he tells the story in his prism, he gets to this phrase, he locked him up like a bird in a cage, and then the prism goes on to say, and in my fourth campaign, I attacked the Chaldeans. Here's what's so interesting. In the entire prism, whenever he talks about a siege, he always says, I besieged and conquered that city. We already read that about the other cities of Judah. And yet in his reference to Jerusalem, there's this curious reference to the besieging and then no conquering. In fact, when it goes on to say, and in my next campaign, let me help you understand what a campaign is. How a uh, guy like Sennacherib would do it is he'd go out and he'd kill this city, this city, this city, this city, this city, and then he'd come home to Nineveh, his capital, and that would mark the end of the campaign. He'd get more supplies, and then he'd go out again, which would mark the beginning of a new campaign. So the implication here, I put Jerusalem in a siege, and when he says, then in my fourth campaign, the implication is, and then I returned home to Nineveh, and I launched out later with another campaign. Sennacherib, explain. How can you, the most mighty man in the entire world, put Jerusalem under siege and then suddenly, without explanation, return home to Nineveh, never conquering the city? What's the explanation? In fact, when you understand how big and powerful Assyria was, the only way they would return without victory is God's supernatural intervention. The silence is deafening. Isn't that beautiful? I love Sennacherib's prism. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you the, the, how I found it. I, I was actually studying this text, the biblical text, and in my commentaries, there was a note that said, all of this drama is documented by an archaeological artifact known as Sennacherib's prism. I started reading that. I got so fascinated. And I immediately thought, is it still in Iraq? Maybe it's in London Museum. Maybe it's in Jerusalem. I didn't know. And I read a little more. It's in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm like, what? You're kidding me. Well, that moment, I jumped in the car, rushed down to the University of Chicago, and had to see it myself. Folks, the Bible is true. It's history. It happens. And as you grow and as I grow more and more confident and trust God's word, a dynamic starts to occur between us and the book. And to describe the dynamic that happens in the life of people who believe the book, I wanted to turn to another passage. At this time, let's look over at Psalm 1. The book of Psalms is the largest book in the Old Testament, in the Bible for that matter right in the middle of the Bible. So if you have your Bible in front of you, you want to grab it, flip open to Psalm 1, 1 Psalm, verses 2 and 3. This is the description of what somebody who really believes the Bible and is connecting with it in God's plan. This is what it looks like. It says in Psalm 1, verse 2 and 3, they, these people, they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. And those people, they are like trees planted along a riverbank. Now, we could read more, and the psalm is beautiful, but I want to end with just those 
two verses because they are so rich, and I'd like to explore them with you a bit. These people who really believe the book, it says they delight in the law of the Lord. (laughs) Is that you? Do you find joy in this book? I didn't used to. I will confess, I was among the majority who let dust accumulate, and I thought the book was the most boring, confusing book on the planet. I don't feel that way anymore. Over time, I have come to delight in the Bible like no other moment in my life, and that's really a strong statement, but I really want to tell you the favorite part of my day, the day, the moment that gives me the greatest joy is that time I've set aside in my calendar to open up the Bible and my prayer journal and spend time with God. Folks, I literally get a rush of adrenaline when I come, you say, come on, you're lying to us. There's no way reading this antiquated piece of literature gets you that jazzed. It does. I feel this building anticipation. Some of you, it's going to be when the Blackhawks play tonight, and uh, I'm telling you, it's a little like that. And you say, it can't be. To explain my delight, my joy in the book, I would go further. It says, they delight in the law of what? The Lord. The connection of God to the book. The book belongs to God. God wrote the book. It's his book. And that's the key. It's not the book that I get so excited about, but it's the God of the book. You see, I've come to recognize that God wrote it. I want to acknowledge he used human authors, but his Holy Spirit moved them to express in their unique personality the truth he had placed on their minds. And so when I read the Bible, I know I'm reading the book God wrote and that God still uses to speak to his people. And so my excitement is I'm about to hear from Almighty God. I'm about to encounter Almighty God. He's about to show himself to me. I mean, that's pretty exciting. He's about to reveal his beauty to me through the words of this book. God, somewhere back in eternity past, said, I'm going to form a people, and I want them to know me. And God said, I'm going to give them a book. And God decided to use the instrument of this book to be an avenue, a foundational avenue, to reveal himself to us, to guide us, to inspire us, to change us. And as a result, I Just love it. Absolutely love it. Now, some of you are like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I have never delighted once in the Bible. In fact, I get confused every time I read it. Maybe we need to go further, and this might help. Going on in the verse, it says, they are those who meditate on it day and night. Meditate. What does that meditating mean? A lot of people read it. That was confusing. Shut the book, check it off their list, and say, all right, give up. Meditation is a form of study that involves a little tenacity, a little work, a little perseverance and striving for understanding and integration of meaning. I actually looked up meditation in the thesaurus, and do you know one of the synonyms is rumination? Maybe that's helpful. I I did some study on rumination. Ruminant animals 
our uh, like cows and sheep and goats. Uh, I'm not, I've, I read about them online. I'm not a farmer. In fact, getting, reading about them online is about as close as I ever want to get to animals like that. I'm not a farm guy. But I was fascinated to learn. Do you know what a ruminant animal does? Come to find out a cow in the morning just goes crazy and just eats grass like it's going out of style. Just chows down, fills his stomach with grass. And then goes and finds a comfortable place in the shade to sit down. And maybe you've seen this before. It's kind of gross. He belches it back up. He like, and then up comes a big wad of this grass and he chews it some more. And then he swallows it again. And later on, he burps it up again later in the day and chews it some more. And you say, that's disgusting. I can't believe you're bringing that up in church. It's actually a beautiful picture for how we are to meditate on Scripture. First of all, I would ask, do you chew it? My son, I have a seven-year-old son, Jake sometimes inhales food. And I have to stop him. You're going to kill yourself. you got to chew it, son, before you swallow. And sometimes people approach the Word of God, they just swallow. And they're like, no, 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 no. You didn't get it, did you? Nope, didn't get it. Well, reread it. Read it again a third time. Think about it. Seek to understand it. This is part of meditation that involves the chewing because without chewing what? We don't get the nutrients out of the food. And same with the Word of God. If you just read it and close it, you didn't benefit in the way God intended from that. You've got to chew it. And then I love the notion of of regurgitating it. Remember the, the meditating Day and night. The, the picture here is of someone who brings it back to mind throughout the day, into the evening. They continue to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to think about what I read this morning again. I'm going to chew on it some more. You know, the cow, the first time it chews the grass, it receives some of the nutritious, nutritious value, but not all of it. Grass doesn't give up its nutritional value very easily. And later in the day when the cow... Choose it some more, it gets a little more nutritional value out of it. And later in the evening, the third time the cow goes at it again, even more is brought out. And similarly with God's word, if, if we're students of it throughout our day, we can be driving our car. Say, you know what? I'm going to turn off the radio. And I'm going to bring back to mind that passage that I read this morning. And I'm just going to think about it. And I'm going to let the Spirit of God speak to me again. And maybe some more value is going to come into my life from that truth. At night, before you go to bed, you know, I have found that if I go to bed thinking about problems, what happens? I toss and turn all night thinking, dreaming about problems. If I go to bed with the Word of God on my mind, I am blessed with that peace-filled God perspective. Sometimes I even wake up with the Word of God as my first thought in the morning as a result. Folks, all day long, we should be calling back to mind, bringing back for further meditation, rumination, the Word of God. You know, I'll get a little personal with you. Uh, uh, Friday night, uh, Jen and I were going to bed. I kissed her goodnight, and a few minutes later, she said, are you sleeping? And I said, well, no. I thought about faking that I was at that moment. I'll give I go, no, I'm not sleeping. What's up? And she said, I'm freaking out. (laughs) I go, you are? 
She goes, Jeff, this house thing is just driving me crazy. We put our house on the market this week to sell our home. Never done this before. First time. And trying to get it ready and keep it ready for showings with little kids has been a nightmare. Trying to determine, you know, what price to set it at and everything has been so unbelievably stressful, more stressful than I ever imagined. And my wife just confessed on Friday night, "Hun, I, I am freaking. This is just causing me great. She goes, I don't think I'm going to go to sleep. I'm just tossing and turning here. She said, would you pray for me? And I said, I'd love to pray for you. And before I prayed for her, I, I blessed her with a little sermon. <laughs> That's the advantage of being married to pastor. Uh, and, and, I, and I said, I remember, remember the passage of scripture we looked at last weekend where Hezekiah spread out his problems before the Lord. He didn't want to look at them apart from the greatness of God to give him perspective as to how big his problems are. I said, babe, let's do that. This is a real problem. We've got to sell this house. Never done this before. It's very stressful. I'm not denying that. But our God is with us here. And he is so big. You know, when Solomon built the glory... Told her all this. When Solomon built the glorious temple, he said, I know that no building can contain you, Almighty God. And I said, God is so big, John. He has sold millions of houses before. He has dealt with problems so immense. And this is no challenge for him. This is small potatoes. Let's rest knowing that we are in good hands. I I left preaching uh, last night here, and I was driving home, and my wife calls me on the cell phone, hands-free, did not use my phone. She said, we just got an offer on the house, and it is a very generous offer. We praise God. But I uh, thank him for that. I looked back uh, to Friday night, and both Jen and I drifted off to sleep, resting in the shadow of his wings. Why? Because we had ruminated Uh, We had meditated on the word of God at night before going to bed, and it blessed our souls for it. One more. The last part of this verse says this. They are like trees planted along the riverbank. I don't know if you've ever seen trees planted along a riverbank, particularly in an arid desert climate like the Bible lands are. It's amazing. I was in Arizona once, and I went out to the desert, and I couldn't see the water, but I could tell where the river was because there was a line of trees following the river. Some of you have seen that before. The, the, the point there is that the trees have roots that reach out into that moist soil and they drink of that river. And that's the image God gives of those of us who connect, who delight, who meditate in his word. We are like trees that are healthy and green and flourishing because of our proximity to the, the source of, of truth, of God's word. So what is that saying? Oh, that's, that's huge. The, it's saying that the Bible is as necessary for our spiritual life as water is to a tree. That's saying that if we neglect the regular feeding on God's word, we are starving our souls. Wow. That's saying that our souls will shrivel up and die without regular feeding from the word of God. That's huge. 
Folks, that's nothing to look away from. If you want a spiritual life that is vibrant, alive, dynamic, and passionate, if you want a love relationship with God that is exploding, we must become regular students of his book. And and some of you are like, man, there's the skeptic in me again. Are you sure that the book really brings spiritual vitality? Let me go scientific on you again and give you some scientific data. Uh, There was a scientific survey done called the Reveal Study. Some of you may have heard it. It was done recently. It involves surveys taken of 1,000 churches. That's a lot of churches that were involved in it. Over a quarter of a million Christians uh, filled out this survey, and it was trying to figure out what is contributing to your spiritual vitality if you're spiritually vital. And if you're not, if you're dying, let's look at the habits of your life and see if we can find some connections. Do you know what they discovered here? Let me give you some quotes that summarize their findings. Uh, The first quote is this, nothing has greater impact on on spiritual growth than reflection on Scripture. Nothing. The number one contributor to spiritual growth, according to this scientific data, is the the reflection, meditation on the Word of God. The, the next quotation in the summary said this, if a church could do only one thing to help its people grow in their relationship with Christ, it would be to get them immersed and in love with the Word of God. Wow. All right, confession time. I've got an agenda. I've got something that I'm praying happens in our church. I am praying that you people become, that we become a people who are immersed and in love with the word of God and consequently in love with the God of the word. And and you say, well, I already am. Fantastic. I'm praying that it grows in all of us, that across the board, we become a people who increasingly are pouring our hearts into the study of God's word, encountering his glory and being instructed by his wisdom as we daily become students of his word. I want to I show you something. This uh, tiny Bible, it's a New Testament was given to me by my great-grandmother. She came to me and she said, Jeff, I, I have something that's a family heirloom, and I want you to have it. My, my grandmother gave it to me, and she said, this belonged to your great-grandfather, Glenn Griffin. And sure enough, I look inside, and he signed it, Glenn Griffin, Clarks, Nebraska. Uh, I looked at the date of it. It's over 100 years old, unbelievably precious. I came to my dad, and I said, Dad, uh, Grandma gave me your grandfather's Bible, and I was wanting to make sure he was okay with it skipping a generation and going into my ownership. And my dad's like, oh, Jeff, that's wonderful. And then he had this puzzled look on his face, and I'm like, what, what, what are you thinking? He goes, I, I just didn't think my grandfather, Glenn Griffin, owned a Bible. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well... He goes, uh, I knew my grandpa when I was young. And he said, Jeff wasn't exactly known as a very spiritual guy. He was a bit of an ornery old 
dude. And uh, just not, you know, really a, a Christian at all. And I'm like, really? I'm like, well, look, Dad. And he read it, and he's like, yeah, guess he had a Bible. How about that? I didn't know it, you know? And I started to look at the Bible a little more carefully. Now, the cover is fairly worn. You know, I can see that he put it in his pocket often. But upon analyzing it and searching for maybe any notes that he would have taken, I discovered that the inside is in remarkably good condition. <laughs> in fact, every page is pristine. As if it's never been open. No underlining, no notes, no dog ears, no sign that the book was ever opened. Isn't it interesting how the condition of the book often corresponds with the condition of the reputation of the man? What condition is your Bible in? Where is your reputation today? Actually, let's not worry about the past. Let's talk about the future. It's God's vision for your life that you would become a student of the book he gave you and that you would underline and mark and read and reread and wear it out in pouring over it and encountering him within those pages. And that someday it would be entrusted to your great-grandchildren and as they looked in it, the condition of the book would match the reputation of the woman or of the man. I pray that all of us become students of his word and are transformed like rivers by the riverbank as a result of that devotion. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the decision that you made to give us a book. It is a gift that we are forever grateful for. And God, it's our desire to believe it, to know that it's true, that you supervised its creation to ensure that everything it says is true about who you are and what life with you can be like. God, we've given up a hundred times on reading the Bible. Help us start anew. With perseverance, teach us to meditate, to ruminate day and night until our soul, our mind, our worldview is formed by you speaking to us through your book. Please, God, make us a church. Make us a people immersed and in love with your book and as a result with you, the God of the book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.